David, this week, Jimmy Kimmel and Sean Hannity brokered a kind of truce. What I want to know is, is there anyone in media you'd like to broker a truce with? I mean, I would love to broker a truce with Sean Hannity, too, just for the <laughs> just for the attention. I, I mean, I, uh, I mean, you know, there are definitely some people that on behalf of the ringer, it'd be fun to broker the truce with. Hmm. Any, uh, na- any names? I don't know if I'm going to name any names. What's your answer to this question? Well, there's this one guy on Twitter, and every time I write about ESPN, he says, Simmons has ordered Curtis to attack ESPN again. <laughs> and I think I'd like to move toward detente by suggesting that he's wrong about me, <laughs> and I'm right, and that we should move on to more fruitful topics like my liberal bias. Yeah, I think that would, be, that would make a lot more sense. Listeners, you're party to a media criticism peace summit. This is the Press Box on the Ringer Podcast Network. The Press Box is the media podcast. We are not allowed to use the phrase, what a difference a year makes. (laughs) We are Brian Curtis and David Shoemaker of The Ringer. If you need more Ringer content in your life, and who doesn't, let me direct you to Molly McHugh's Mark Zuckerberg in Washington primer for Zuckerberg's appearance for the house today. That was wild. Shea Serrano on Daryl Morey's Small Ball Musical. And of course, (laughs) so good. Tuesday night's HBO premiere of The Ringer's Andre the Giant documentary featuring... A certain smooth-headed talking head who will remind you of a young Steve Schmidt. David, (laughs) that's like the most insulting thing I've ever said about you. Three topics for you today, David. First, we'll discuss the Atlantic's hiring and near-instantaneous firing of conservative provocateur Kevin D. Williamson and what that says about the future of the Think Peace Industrial Complex. Second, The Simpsons finally addresses the criticism of the character Apu And everybody's still pissed off. We discuss whether they're right to be. And finally, what if your smiling, toupee local news anchor read some conservative propaganda after reading the winning lottery numbers? America's Sinclair problem. Plus, as always, our overworked Twitter joke of the week. But David, I'll call this first segment, Let the Right One In. (laughs) When Kevin D. Williamson was hired away from National Review by The Atlantic, an old tweet of his where he said he had hanging in mind as a punishment for women who have abortions came under scrutiny. But Atlantic editor Jeffrey Goldberg waved that away, saying it was unfair to judge Williamson's work on a handful of tweets, in this case, one he had deleted. Then Media Matters found him treating abortion as a homicide on a podcast. So it was not an impulsive take, but one he had expanded on at some length. Listen. You know, I am, uh, as you know, I'm kind of squishy on capital punishment in general, but um, that I'm absolutely willing to see uh, abortion treated like a regular homicide under the criminal code. Sure. Now Instantly. What's that? Instantly. Sure. As of tomorrow. I would take it, yeah. I mean, now it's going to be 150 years before this happens. And then after going one and done in terms of Atlantic think pieces, Williamson was fired. What was your first reaction upon hearing the last part of that news? Oh, man, I can't. The the last part, I mean, it, it was pretty stunning that it got to the point of him writing an article I mean, that it, that it got that far. And then he basically ended up getting fired for the initial complaint. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, we talked we've talked about this now for I feel like this has been going on for two weeks at least, you know, and, and we've we talked about doing it for last week and on the show. And, and, and uh, you know, so we've been having this conversation. And I remember our earliest conversation. I said to you, you know, this reminded me. The first thing I thought of was the conversation, the, the discussions we've had on the podcast before about Jamel Hill and how. Tweets are so much more uh, visceral or so much more, you know, uh, um, objectionable to so many people than the actual content of somebody's work because tweets are accessible. You know, they're right there. Someone can just, you know, retweet something and say, look at what this person said. And it was sort of crazy to me that the entire initial furor was about those two tweets. You know, it was a tweet and a a follow up tweet, basically. And I've been reading Williamson on and off for a long time. And I was just like, he's said a lot more objectionable stuff than that. (laughs) Um, Yes. It took it took a while. Equally objectionable. Yeah. It took a while for people to get to the, you know, definitionally racist stuff that he wrote when he you know went to Ohio and, and reported from the ground there. Um, because that was a long piece that someone had to re- like vaguely remember and dig up, or I think probably just pour through his entire n- National Review oeuvre. Um, and then, you know, beyond that, like, I get, I mean, nobody's like read his book. He could have like, you know, called for the death of, of all children in his book. I mean, like, but no one would even know. It's just, it's more, you know, the easiest, the, the lowest hanging fruit are like, are tweets. 
you know? Isn't that weird? Yeah. How that's become like the permanent record? Yeah. Like I, the permanent strike against thing, you is the the thing something hold, you tweeted. Yeah, the thing that should be held least against you in a lot of ways. Well, and I thought what was funny is when he got hired by The Atlantic in Jeffrey Goldberg's letter to the staff, uh-huh. the first note to the staff, he said, he's off Twitter. And I take this as a sign of his maturity. <laughs> now, I just find it funny that you say, I trust this person to write for us, but I don't trust them to tweet. Yeah. Right. That that that's already a little bit of an alarm bell to me. Mm-hmm. Like I understand that's the impulsive stuff. That's the stuff that doesn't come out right. It gets misunderstood. Lord knows I have been there, if not quite on the same terms. But like, but that's just weird to me. I don't trust. I don't really want you to tweet anymore. Especially when that's the. I mean, who knows what Jeffrey Goldberg's calculus was? But at almost any you know media uh, company in America, your follower count on Twitter is has a lot to do with whether or not you're going to get hired, or at least whether or not someone's going to notice you to employ you. I mean, that's certainly people have been saying that about the athletic that they're just looking for X number of Twitter followers, and then you're you know you're on board. Yeah. Uh, so I mean, to to to, to have someone stop self promoting for the sake of I don't know decency and maturity that seems a little bit weird. We have some real talk about Williamson. Yeah, let's do it. He's not that good. No, he's not that good. No, he's more gonzo than good. Yes. You're right. And I would suggest that at a place like National Review, where the writing does not tend to be on that sort of gonzo, unconventional style, that he gets wildly overrated. Absolutely true. He's, it's mean, not I, even, the, I mean, it's the gonzo, but there, I mean, it's, there's two parts of him. He's, he's a, you know, a, a theater critic by trade before he was a really a political comment, uh, commentator. And he, he wrote about the theater a lot for National Review as well. And I think so there's the highbrow subject matter. And then there's the sort of uh, purple is not the right word, but the the sort of like over the hyper literate word choices, <laughs> writing style. And then, yeah, the sort of gonzo, the, the gonzo aesthetic, too. I, he was just so much better than everything. He was so he not better. He was just such a different beast than everyone around him. Exactly. That he got held up as this literary Ooh, icon. When a writer. Like, yeah. Right. Not just somebody who's arguing conservative positions, doing, you know, goodness. And I'm not saying the quality of writing there is bad, but mm-hmm. it's just like it's like he was just doing something totally different. Sure. So I feel like he got totally, I, you know, I, conservative stylists. You can have Kevin Williamson and I'll take Andy Ferguson from The Weekly Standard or mm-hmm. Jonathan V. Last. Right. Any day of the week. Any day of the week. I feel the whole argument about him before and after was was basically just on the wrong trajectory because I felt there were a lot of well-meaning people basically trying to figure out what is the line in the sand of acceptable discourse, right? If you said X, yes. you can't get into the Atlantic. Or and if you said Y and, and trying to figure out like, okay, if you think abortion is murder and then if you think this and then, you know, that you can't get into the Atlantic. Here's here's why that's totally nuts to me. What's worse, writing and saying everything that Kevin Williamson said, right, or helping write George W. Bush's axis of evil speech that pushed us into the Iraq war? Yeah. And if you say the latter, then why is David Frum in good standing at the Atlantic? Yeah. Why is that okay? Wow. Right. And if you, you know, because if that to me is just as disqualifying as anything he did, which mm-hmm. is why I think the whole kind of trying to figure out what is publishable speech and what is not and what gets you the next job is just. It's just silly. Well, I mean, part of this is, is, I mean, a lot of this is on Goldberg, right? Because you, he, he should have seen it, should have seen this reaction coming and he should have been, had a, you know, a preemptive letter to the staff. He should have told people it was happening and for them to address him directly with any concerns or, or shut up. You know, I mean, it's, if you, it, it, you, you certainly can't give this very milk toast. I don't really think he meant what he said response the first time around, like, and, and then subsequently fire him for this for that very thing i mean we just listened to the podcast first of all of all the podcasts that didn't need to exist i mean <laughs> like that what what like the i mean that yeah. was not you not, can say the same thing about this one but but fair enough we got jim at least we have high production yeah, values on this um but listen but but it's not like i don't the fact that he reiterated it two days later on a on a just a, a you know a podcast that's mostly just verbal diarrhea or you just here, here are the things I wrote about this week or that we talked about this week, I don't I don't know why you'd be surprised by that you know I mean that that's it, there's nothing there no and the, fa- and the fact he, that you also talked about it on a podcast yeah yeah that's weird I mean it's like, like Kevin, your it's, whole case was that it was just a totally impulsive tweet that he didn't mean anything by it. Yeah. But the fact that he talked about what he clearly believed in another venue was the disqualifier. Yeah, or even if it's not, I mean, even if it's not impulsive. I mean, I think the defense of Williamson, 
that some people mount, and I think there's a lot of legitimacy to it, is that he's a, more of a provocateur than an ideologue. I think that's right. And he might he might accept that. And even though he has said that he does, you know, he, he has said in triplicate that he does believe that thing. If he's a provocateur and he's just trying to, you know, take the most extreme stance or the most interesting stance just to get a rise out of people, um, again, I don't know why you'd be surprised that he would repeat it. So, right. So, 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 in that to that extent, it's on it's on Goldberg. He, he's got to be. He's. I mean, the Atlantic as an institution should be employing conservative people uh, if that's what their editorial direction, you know, director sees fit. And if they're going to, they should make these rules for themselves. It's not. It's not. If it, if it's about abortion opinions on Twitter then, you know, so be it. But have it like be confident in your decision. That's where I want to go next. This to me is the unreported, at least as far as I've seen part of this, is the staff at The Atlantic. Mm -hmm. Right. What they thought about this and where whether they were willing to work and be at a same place with Kevin Williams. Right. Which to me, ultimately, just operationally is the much bigger question than we can, you know, all of us debating whether this work was disqualifying for this job. Mm -hmm. Will the people work with you? I tweet a little bit jokingly about Barstool Van Talk at ESPN. Mm -hmm. Some would say there was a limited audience for that tweet, but I thought the I thought the analogy actually (laughs) worked worked out just fine. I kid. Anyway, what happened there was that they get into business with these people and ESPN. And some of their prominent employees say, you know what? This is no good. Mm-hmm. This, the, to work, even though these guys might not have been the perpetrators of why I didn't like at Barstool, that was this hive of misogyny. And I do not want to get into business with this brand. Yeah. And that was ultimately what it was, right? Yeah. It wasn't that something had happened at Barstool. It was that e- valued ESPN employees were like, no way. And to me, this whole decision rests on do people at the Atlantic? who Kevin Williamson might have indirectly said should be hung mm-hmm. or their friend should be or their sister should be or their mother should be or whomever. Right. Do they want to work with this? Can they work with this person and can they make it work? Yeah. Right. Like it's it's a company of of people. Right. Journal, you know, magazines are we can talk about ideas and, and this and this and that. But like ultimately it's like, do you want to work with this person? And mm-hmm. I'd just be fascinated to know. Who at the Atlantic was like, yeah, no, you know, and what what Jeffrey Goldberg's inbox looked like as the various as the as he hired him and as as the second thing came out, because to me that that is just, you know, just as important as anything. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure there was a lot of I'm sure there was probably a feeling on on uh, in, you know, on Goldberg's side that because Williamson is anti-Trump, that, you know, previous sins would be forgiven in a similar way to the way that, you know, from David Frum's uh semi conversion to the moderate left made him acceptable. Yeah. Um it turns out when you go really hard on these, you know, on on some very very uh you know, inflammatory subjects, um it's not as easy to forgive and forget, I guess. Um but I do want to say, you know, you mentioned Gonzo earlier. I I referred to him as a provocateur. Yeah. I I I wanted to just at least mention this I mean, certainly a lot of the ideas, if you've read a lot of his pieces, he's definitely trying things on for size. He's trying either either some intellectual exercises like when you wrote that, you know, the Republicans, you know, have been the 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 party of um, of social justice and civil rights and civil rights. Yeah, Uh, they were. I mean, certainly they were during the, you know, in American history, but that they still are, that there was no great flip flopping of of allegiances, right, of sides. that's, I mean, he knew that was bullshit when he started writing it, Absolutely. Right? But he wanted to see if he could do it. And the fact that people kind of engaged with it seriously, I think, you know, speaks to the, the fact that he did a fairly good job. And certainly he's, you know, I don't, you say he's not a very good writer. And, and, and I think stylistically, it's a little bit, he, he just, I pull my hair out, you know, sometimes, but I don't have any to pull. But the, but, but yeah, I mean, he's a, he's a smart man, you know, I mean, oh, pe- totally. many people have pointed out that like Tanasi Coates engaged with him on the reparations issue. You know, I mean, there was, you know, he, he's got, he's, he's got a level of respect and, um, but I, but I do think that there is this sort of interesting, like conservative preoccupation with being a provocateur. You know, it's not, we, we all the know word, the word you're looking for here is troll, right? But, well, it, it it is, it is a troll. But I know, it, I know that word seems toxic. It, you're but, right. But I don't think it really is. Cause I think there's a lot of troll in everybody, even I, people who are calling out trolls on Twitter. Totally true. You know, people like to write pieces to get reactions. So they have certain tweets or certain pieces to get reactions, even if the bulk of their work is you know, let's say on the other side of whatever sure. non-troll fence that is. Yeah, but th- but it's, I mean, there's not, 
you know, the, I think the conservative writer, conservative writers look so fondly back at, you know, William F. Buckley or, or Christopher Hitchens, I think, number one, who was certainly would have been described as a troll if he were around today. Right. <laughs> a lot of his pieces. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, you could see him just going in with his like lip snarled and a wink in his eye. You know, I mean, it's, he knew what he was doing. And there's like a fascination with being offensive um, and, and not and I don't mean that necessarily as an insult, but it's this, you know, there's a point where. You have to get I think there's a feeling that you have to be a troll to get attention like he would have Kevin Williamson would have never been up for the Atlantic job had he not pissed as many people off as he had along do, the way. Do you really think that's well, a case? no, no, this you, is I'm just, you can't follow the Ross Douthat path to fame and fortune. I think you can certainly. I, I think that I think that there's you have to be really good to be Ross Douthat. I, th- but I, I think the liberal media, there's this giant market. I, I agree with that. But there's this giant market for quote unquote reasonable conservatives. Sure. Right. Even if you have all the same issue positions that you just regard people and treat people in a different way and generally, you know, seem like a reasonable guy, at least in your pros. But right? the, thirst, the thirst for page views, the thirst for clicks, for retweets. Um, Do we think some of this is being in the National Review bubble? talk about the liberal bubble all yeah. the time, which is certainly exists, but the National Review bubble where some of this stuff plays. I read a piece of his, this is not one of the controversial ones, but he wrote this one in 2012 called Like a Boss that's all about how Mitt Romney should just own being a rich yes. guy. Did yes. you read? You remember this piece? Yeah. Which actually is what Donald Trump essentially did four years later, so I guess he gets credit for being fairly prophetic with that one. But to me, what I can, when I read that piece, I can see the temptation of a liberalish editor with Kevin Williams. Mm-hmm. Because I can, the 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 point of that is kind of one of those funny, provocative things, right? You know, mm-hmm. it's like, oh, this is kind of a piece that will get everybody riled up. This is an easy tweet. Mitch Romney should be a rich guy, you know, all this stuff. Yeah. But like the top of it was all this kind of, you know, weird paragraph about how rich guys have more male heirs, right? He said this about uh, Obama, says, since Obama has only daughters, may as well give this guy a cardigan and fallopian tubes, right? Like, it's just like weird and sort of off-putting yeah. but you could see if you're the atlantic you're like, well we would just see we would just take that paragraph out yeah and we would just have the other two paragraphs which are funny uh-huh. well argued they're not wrong right mitt romney didn't make a mess of himself pretending not to be a rich guy or getting like concerned about his wealth you mm-hmm. know and and i think that's what it is they think oh we just we just you know just kind of trim around the edges a little bit uh-huh. and he can be our kind of conservative writer um i'm not sure that i'm not sure kevin williamson had any actual interest in that I think he seems like a guy who wants to be what he wants to be. Yeah, and maybe so. I mean, I certainly, I to, to me, to me, the trolling, the the provocateur stuff that, that that was it was aspirational. I think that he, I think that he probably loved the idea of writing for the Atlantic and having a broader audience and either converting people to his point of view or continuing to you know antagonize them for for uh, attention. Yeah, he had some he had some line about that in his goodbye note to National Review. The uh, a brief detour. The Atlantic hired Williamson for its ideas section. Mm-hmm. What part of the Atlantic, as it's currently constituted, is not about ideas? I have no idea. Like Ta-Nehisi Coates, <laughs> Molly Ball, before she went to time, McKay Coppins, David Graham. Aren't, aren't they writing think pieces? Yes. Isn't that the whole Atlantic? Yeah. Isn't that like the ringer starting an NBA vertical? <laughs> Where it's like, isn't that the whole thing? I mean, that just it just seems a little redundant, doesn't it? Uh, you're exactly right. I, I always just thought that was funny. Yeah. We need some more ideas. Mm-hmm. Well, we have a lot. It's all ideas. Yeah. Right? That's what it is. Well, I think that I, to bring this back around for full circle to the tweet, um, I mean, for one thing, the, his, his, his tweet about, about abortion was an abject failure even from a trolling standpoint, right? I mean, to say, I, I, I actually admire the honesty, if he's honest, but if you want to make an arch point about, about abortion rights, do not conflate that with another equally problematic issue like capital punishment, right? <laughs> right. Christopher Hitchens would have never, would have never tied abortion rights to, to hanging, right? I mean, that's, those are, those he, are. He might have, but, but yeah, let's say on a good day. Sure. Yeah, exactly. He, he might've said that on a stage with a cigarette dangling out of his mouth, but I don't think he would have made that like the centerpiece of a book. <laughs> At a dinner party. After exactly. A um, couple of glasses. Yeah. But yeah, but it, it was a failure of a tweet. And I think that's really, that really gets to the heart of what, you know, of the whims and problem is that it's that first paragraph problem that you were talking about before the, 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 he, he got away with a lot because he was at the National Review. 
um, both because it's a, you know, it's, it's just a different climate, you know. Wasn't than, the racially offensive stuff in the first paragraph too? Yes, absolutely. The very, the very first lines of his, of when he was in, it was, yeah, his, his, uh, piece, Ferguson piece when he went to Illinois. Yeah. The first line was, hey, crack a, hey, crack a white devil, F you white devil. And that's a child yelling at him from the streets. Right. And then he goes on to make which, some unfortunate which, comparisons. Which there. by the way, either, I don't know if you blame his, him or his editors, uh, but I've never uh, read, read that paragraph. And if anyone believes that that paragraph actually occurred, let me know. <laughs> I mean, it's it, like there's like that. There are no words in there that resemble real life. Um, but anyway, it's it's the it's that's the problem is that he is that he's he it's, he goes one step too far thoughtlessly under the pretense of I don't, trolling, doing whatever else. But the other problem is it's it's that that it was a tweet to, again, bring it back full circle most of the people who were offended by his hiring, I guarantee didn't know who he was. I'm not talking about Atlantic staffers. I'm talking about people who rallied behind those that were originally offended, you know, the other people that were tweeting about it. And their access to Kevin Williams had came through the existence of this tweet, right? So everything comes with this very particular point of view, which I'm not saying is necessarily wrong. But you got to, I mean, th this is the world we live in where, you, you know, if you're going to troll, you got to be ready to own that for the rest of your life because it's out there. All right, David, now it's time for our overworked Twitter joke of the week where we celebrate a gag that was so obvious that all of media Twitter made it at exactly the same time. First off, um, we are I, I think the Mark Zuckerberg Congress memes are a little too fresh. <laughs> Well, that's think? happening as we're speaking. It is, I mean, happen it is yeah. happening. It is happening in real time. So ne next week we may have to, to you, take stock. If it's you, just too, it's, it's breaking news. If you're making blow. a tweet talking about making a platform joke based on the cushion that he's sitting on. Yeah, that was a big you, one. You might win. Right. Or the one with all the cameras gathered around him. Anyway, yeah. we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that at a later time. How about any tweet about Lindsey Buckingham leaving Fleetwood Mac and, quote, going his own way? That's via Hugh Hopkins. <laughs> big, big one last couple of days. Also, how about some gags from last Monday's NCAA title game and the dominant performance from Villanova's Dante DiVincenzo? How many times did you see Dante's Inferno or Dante's Peak <laughs> on Twitter? Or, quote, Dante is the most popular Italian athlete from Philadelphia since Rocky. Thanks to Matt Silich for the heads up on that one. David, did you see the dumb thing that Ray Lewis said? No. Or do I do I need to be more, Tell, me, do I need to be more please, specific? Yeah, please please enlighten me. Refer, referring to the turbulent offseason of Odell Beckham Jr., who's the subject of trade rumors, Lewis said that Beckham has, quote, removed God from his life. That's the reason he's having problems. <laughs> removed God from his life. To which a bunch of people joked, quote, Ray Lewis removed a man from his life. <laughs> <laughs> referring, of course, the whole stabbing thing back in 2000, which we should note merely, resulted merely in an obstruction of justice plea from Lewis. <laughs> I'm not going to libel anyone with the overworked Twitter joke of the week. Thanks to Nicholas Dubon for that one. <laughs> How about some overworked Twitter from my adopted home country of Australia? This from Australian Rules Football, Tori Dixon, a player for the Western Bulldogs. Remember that mascot? All right. Was has alleged that he was bitten by another player named Connor McKenna, to which everyone in the Sunbird country tweeted, man bites dog. <laughs> Not bad. Solid joke. Nice work. This resulted, by the way, in a formal hearing for McKenna, the biter, during which, and here I'm quoting a Fox Sports piece, two, piece, two people described the footballer as, quote, grounded and someone who plays the game the right way. I believe that sports cliche is officially over <laughs> when you have bitten somebody and you... And you play the game the right way. Anyway, that's from listener Matthew Heasley. Good on you, Matthew. And finally, David, you might have seen the news that Steven Spielberg told the British newspaper The Sun that he'd consider casting a female hero in an Indiana Jones movie. We'd have to change the name from Jones to Joan, and there would be nothing wrong with that, at which point a bunch of people tweeted, but that's not how last names work. You know, I'm pretty sure that Steven Spielberg was kidding, you know, and there's not there's not going to be a Gal Gadot movie called Indiana Joan. Wait, that's not, not as serious. Anyway, that is from Adam Sternberg via Benjamin Howard. All right, David, before we talk about The Simpsons reckoning with Apu, let's take a quick break. Hey, this is J.J. Redick. You may know me as a basketball player. You may have seen me play during my college career at Duke University or perhaps over the past decade playing in the NBA for the Magic, the Bucks, the Clippers, or the Sixers. Well, today I'm here to tell you about my show, the J.J. Redick Podcast on the Ringer Podcast Network. 
This is where you can find me interviewing athletes as well as in-depth conversations with celebrities. So make sure to subscribe to the JJ Reddick podcast wherever you get your podcasts. David, I'd like to call our second topic the people versus Lisa Simpson. It wasn't Bart Fantastic or Homer opinion. or Bumblebee Man whom the writers of The Simpsons deputized to belatedly respond to the anger over the character of Apu. It was Lisa, the putative liberal conscience of the show. Here's what she said on Sunday's episode. Well, what am I supposed to do? It's hard to say. Something that started decades ago and was applauded and inoffensive is now politically incorrect. Can you do? Some things will be dealt with at a later date. If at all. A little dismissive to the issue of ethnic stereotyping raised in Hari Kondabalu's documentary, The Problem with Apu, isn't it? David, let's start with the obvious. What did you make of the Simpsons response? Well, I mean, I guess it's not for me to say whether or not they should have, I mean, just not dealt with it at all if they weren't willing to take it seriously. You know, I mean, this is comedy. There's nothing that's off limits. Um, But I just thought, I thought it was tactless. Um, It was very high-handed, wasn't it? Yeah. I mean, it's not, I mean, I guess the conceit in a vacuum isn't that unusual for The Simpsons. I mean, it's not the first time they've had someone break the fourth wall and turn to the camera. Um, but to put that line, I, th- I mean, I think the failure that other people have pointed out to put the line in, in Lisa's mouth, who is like, you know, ostensibly the most progressive member of the cast. Yeah. Um, uh, I think was a little bit, uh, unsettling and also the way they just looked at the camera yeah. afterwards, like kind of like, yeah, you know, yeah, and that's, that's all you get. Yeah. Like that was weird. I just thought the whole thing was weird, like kind of vaguely threatening. It seemed like, yeah, it it, it read like it read like, you know, you could the, the writer's room was like exchanging high fives when they came up with this concept. And, and it was just the wrong concept. You know, I mean, like you could if if you say, you know, we're comfortable with who a poo is the character, um, but we want to acknowledge the existence of this. You can build a story around him that does not deliberately antagonize. I mean, the, I guess my 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 well, thing that actually is, addresses it, right? Yeah, exactly. My my this is what I this is this is my issue with it. There's nothing objectionable about the documentary, right? The documentary was not. No, of course not. No. The, the, the the documentary was. I mean, it wasn't like you know, a love letter to The Simpsons, but it was based in love for The Simpsons. Oh, absolutely. And the guy said, "I love The Simpsons." But this is the one thing I just, you know, I just, I can't, I can't deal with. Yeah. And he was trying to make sense of it. And it's like, if someone, I mean, yeah, I mean, it it didn't, there's no need to be antagonistic sort of in response, I guess, you know, or to be so arch, antagonistic might be the wrong word. It just, go ahead. Oh, I like this tweet from Shuja Hader. This is quoting what Lisa said. Something that started decades ago and was applauded and inoffensive is now politically incorrect is literally true of everything that is racist. (laughs) It's really funny, right? Yeah. I I think there's a larger media issue here beyond beyond the simple response, which is what we might call comedy in the time of think pieces, right? Where, you know, let's say that people have always reacted, newspapers and otherwise, to art and Uh to what's on television and debated it and all those kinds of things. But we're now at this point where I don't think there's much difference uh, between watching Roseanne, which was the subject of like 9 billion stories the other day, yes. the Roseanne ratings, yes. to watching it on your phone and reading Twitter on your phone. Uh-huh. These seem like similar things, right? And it's also just easier to raise an army on Twitter and to get to get people to pay attention to something like this. Mm-hmm. And so you can't just go high-handed anymore, right? Yeah. You have to be weird. You know, in some way, you don't have to be talking to Twitter on your television show. But you have to just things things if things don't get addressed, it, it can't just go on, right? Right. It's just going to create more of a fear. I mean, I, I think that's part of my takeaway on this, anyway. Yeah, no, I know. I think that's I think that's right. I think that I think that you know, there's. I, I want to reiterate that there's nothing. I mean, that you know, the Simpsons writer writing team is free to do whatever they want. You know, I mean, and they and they and they thought this was a funny gag at, you know, a funny way to, to kind of like play this off. And, and it just, it landed with a thud and that's part of the, you know, that's part of the, the danger of comedy, right? That, that you're going to make a joke that you think, you know, well, that, this wasn't funny. I mean, this was like, I didn't, it was, it was barely a laugh line, right? It didn't seem like that was meant to get a laugh. Right. I mean, it was a joke that would have been, that wouldn't have made the cut at, you know, in the South Park writer's room. 
But the, but but you know, it's not even just like being un PC or be you know or taking on this like touchy subject. It was addressing. I mean, it it was addressing this documentary that that again it it was directly about the Simpsons, and it wasn't it wasn't it wasn't cruel on its face. The documentary, you know, no. so it it seemed it was just it was just an incredible misfire. I watched um, the doc last night. And what's amazing to me, first of all, it starts out and you think, you're, I'm first of all, I'm going, oh my gosh, this is going to be one of these Michael Moore style documentaries mm -hmm. where he never talks to the sub, the putative subject of the documentary. Mm -hmm. like, I know where this is going. What's powerful about it is that Kandabalu talks to comedians of Indian or South Asian descent, like Aziz Ansari and Cal Penn and people like that, uh, people like former Surgeon General Vivek Murthy. And mm -hmm. all of them, all of them say, you know, basically, like, I was called Apu on the playground. Yeah. That character was wielded as a stereotype and as a racial slur, mm -hmm. you know, and to me, it was it's so moving. And he also, are, you know, says essentially this character was like a stand in for my parents, you know, people of my parents age mm -hmm. and essentially erased them as real people and replaced them with this stereotypical, you know, he calls him devious and kind of subservient guy who runs a one runs a quickie mart. Right. And I just think like you it is impossible to watch that uh at least for me and not think like oh this is this is hurtful stuff right yeah. this is big time stuff yeah and you know it has to be it just should be dealt with in some kind of intelligent way beyond obviously what they did that's totally true i mean this is this is a point of contention um online almost every day where um people willfully ignore the experience of others because they feel like they're making a point that is free of so free of bias um that uh and so free of identity politics that they don't need to think about what other people have experienced in life right and they are always if you're if you're if you're accusing other people of identity politics um, you were almost always wrong. <laughs> <laughs> the, I mean, the, just as, I mean, it's, it's, right. it's, well, if it, you're slinging that phrase around. Sure. Yes. Um, but I, but, you but know, I think that the, the, but going back to the experience, I think that, uh, of, of the people in the documentary, I think one thing that people have pointed out, a lot of people in, um, and I do think it's important to take the people defending the Simpsons, defending, you know, whatever at face value. Uh, but there's really not many well, in here, the documentary. No, no, not in the documentary. I mean, the people since the since the episode has come out, you know, there have been a lot of people saying, well, why aren't you complaining about groundskeeper Willie? Why aren't you complaining? You know, but all there's all these other stereotypical characters. And I think that what's what pe but many have said that's really that makes the Apu situation um, most poignant is that he was the only pop culture depiction of someone of Indian descent. On, on, you know, in, in, at that point in time. I mean, there really were not many others. There were many there's, you know. There were there were other Irish uh, Irish characters that you could look to, or Scottish characters, sorry, that you could look to if you're, uh, if you know, if 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 you rather than be offended by the presence of groundskeeper Willie, oh, sure, or, yeah, or uh, you know, any any number of other people on the show. Not to give the Simpsons a pass, but there certainly it certainly began in a completely different climate. So somebody say, uh, did you know, or should should Jews be offended by Krusty the Clown? It was just like Krusty the Clown was like him be, him acknowledging his. His, his Judaism was a later subplot that they actually gave depth to his character, albeit in a ridiculous, you know, like farcical way. But and I don't even feel that that's what this is about. I mean, not that's, at just, all. that's just like, hey, look over there. There's something else you might, someone might be offended by. Yeah. I mean, that, that doesn't, that doesn't do anything for me. No, that not argument at all. is just really, I feel like it's fine because there's all these comedians now. I've heard Jerry Seinfeld say this that you can't do com, you know, he doesn't want to perform at college campuses anymore mm -hmm. because there are these PC absolutists, mm -hmm. right, that will scrutinize every joke. And put every joke under the microscope. And Bill, it's just Bill Maher is a big advocate as well. <laughs> right. And and, I, and I'm sure there are some non-negligible number of those people in the world. Right. Mm -hmm. But I'd also argue there are people who are comedy absolutists yeah. who think everything should be like, what, you can't take a joke? Yeah. Right. Like that everything that's a joke is OK mm -hmm. and shouldn't be questioned because it's just comedy. And, hey, we're making fun of everybody. Yeah. Well, you know, sometimes when you make fun of certain people. <laughs> it can be hurtful, right? Yeah. And and I'm and I wouldn't just I wouldn't I, I love comedy and I love when comedians loved often when comedians go way 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 too far. That's that can be funny. Sure. But I don't know. I just I I thought there was there's an opportunity here for them to do something. I mean, it's another amazing thing about the documentary is Hank Azaria says in the documentary in an interview, a different interview, that he was told to do, just do the most stereotypical 
version of this character possible. Uh-huh. I mean, there's there's nobody when you talk about defenses of it, people are defending it in different ways, but nobody is defending this the depiction of this character. Sure, nobody's defending it at all, right? We should tell you something. The Simpsons aren't defending it, other than oh, this character's been around a long time. Yeah, I mean, Hank Azaria was when the documentary came out said that it it hurt him, you know, and and in a in I mean that that they were taking it seriously and they were, you know, but apparently they this the writing crew wasn't taking it quite as seriously as Hank Azaria was. Um, yeah. And he apparently he didn't want to do an interview for the movie because he said, "Oh, well, you'll have the edit of the interview, mm-hmm. so you better edit what I say." Yeah, I guess we we it's like it's like Ezra Klein and Sam Harris now. Whenever we have to have a big talk, it has to be on a podcast yes. or something. Yes, but if that's the case, let's do the let's have the podcast. Yeah, I'm ready. I no. mean, I think that'd be a fascinating conversation. Yeah, absolutely true. I mean, I to to go to your to your point about comedy. I mean, you're right. When it, there, there's no rules. I mean, I'm sure there are some people who are, you know, going to tweet about every inappropriate joke that gets made. It's not limited to college campuses. I mean, that's a total red herring, right? But at the end of the day, you know, there have been some incredibly successful comics in our in, in very recent years that said really offensive things. You know, Dave Chappelle deliberately offends people every time he goes out on stage. Louis C.K., same thing, you know? Now you're going to say, well, those are the most famous comics. They're bulletproof, whatever. But, like, maybe that's the point. You know, I mean, maybe... Maybe if you're if you're just if you're doing your first open mic night and you're and you're inclined to tell a bunch of like Jew jokes or something, maybe wait till you get a little bit of a following, you know, like to put on the training wheels of respectability for a little while and see if you can be funny working like Jerry Seinfeld, you know, I mean, work, working a more, you know, family friendly style. But anyway, I mean, it's just it, it, there's no there's no lack of of boundary pushing comedy in the world, you know, no. so there shouldn't be uh, the, the idea that there's that there's, you know, there should be this alarmism about the direction of political correctness running amok. Uh, if you find yourself worrying about such things, <laughs> I think take a step back and take a look in the mirror. I agree. All right, David, our final topic I'd like to call you stay robotically on message, San Diego. <laughs> we missed a chance to talk about Sinclair last week, but here comes a Sinclair host bearing what we in journalism like to call a peg. Jamie Allman of St. Louis's KDNL tweeted the following about a Parkland shooting survivor. Quote, I've been hanging out, getting ready to ram a hot poker up David Hogg's ass tomorrow. Busy working, preparing. Awesome. Like he added those last two notes to that. Really advertisers, yeah, advertisers deserted Allman's show as they did the show hosted by Fox News' Laura Ingram. Allman's show was canceled and he resigned. But let's talk about Sinclair, which owns more local TV stations than anyone in the country. Here's a statement the company made its anchors read the other day via compilation from Deadspin's Timothy Burke. The sharing of biased and false news has become all too common on social media. More alarming, some media outlets publish the same fake stories without checking facts first. The sharing of biased and false, false news, news has, has become, become all, all too common, common on, on social, social media. media. More alarming, some media I'm not sure we need to argue about whether that's bizarre. So I guess I'll start here. How worried should we be that this is on local news all over the country? Um, uh, worry is an interesting word. I, I think that the, I think I think that it's troublesome for sure. Um, it's a it feels you know it's sort of like the media version of the right wing grassroots effort to get you know. Uh, election, I mean, to get low-level state elections stacked in red states, you know, and and even in blue states, or to run, to run and fund people all up and down, and then and then the, the and stack the judiciary and, and and that sort of thing to to go in at the very bottom. We're not we're not launching <laughs> a new news network. We are buying up often right. struggling uh, news news channels, local news channels, and or I mean local channels, and um sort of taking over the way they deliver news. Um, We're not trying to win the presidency. We're trying to win the state house. Exactly. Um, it feels a little bit, it feels, it, it, it's hard to look at it and not feel like it's insidious. And frankly, you know, I spent a lot of time on uh, some weird parts of Reddit, you know, over the course of any <laughs> given week. There were a lot of people on the right-leaning parts of Reddit, be it, the, you know, the Donald or even conspiracy places like that, who, Saw when this when the news first broke when when the when when the Deadspin video first came out who reacted to it 
by saying, yeah, look, the media is this is how corrupt the media is before they realized that this was actually a hit on the on the conservative side. <laughs> so they say, oh, all the media are robotically repeating talking points from above. They just didn't realize they were conservative talking points, exactly. pro-Trump talking points. Exactly. I mean, it's it's just a very it's a very, very weird situation. Um, you know, Sinclair Media has been a, an interesting subject for a long time, but they've managed to sort of fly under the radar. Yeah. And um, it's hard, right? I mean, I think that's what Timothy Burke's achievement in this was. Yeah. Was getting all this footage together, right? I mean, it's kind of a weird piece of pop art in of yes, itself. Absolutely. It's very, very well done. It feels like that could just run in a room at MoMA. <laughs> yeah. And I would just be like, wait, it was like 2018 America, right? By yeah. Timothy Burke. And I would be like, I, I'm going to watch this for like 20 minutes on a loop. Absolutely. Um, but, you know, this was this story was reported that there were going to be these things, but him bringing it together and so many news anchors, mm -hmm. so many people all going through the same spiel. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. You I mean, this is, this isn't, this is an aside, but it was, but the first time I saw it, I felt it was almost as uh, it, it was almost as, as much of a takedown of uh news anchor voice as it was of the, <laughs> of the Sinclair media. When you hear all these people reading it in this like big put on style in the, in the age of podcasts, it, it's, it's uh, all those people together using that tone were so preposterous, but yeah. we'll go back to the subject. David Shoemaker and Brian Curtis bring you action news. It is funny, right? If you don't watch local news, you're just so shocked. Like, Oh wait, they still talk like that. Or even if you do, you think we, I, you know, you're kind of used to the five people you see every week, you know, <laughs> right. everybody's just they're all and there were a lot of people standing up to do that, which was just very strange, yeah. you know, like standing on the side stage, yeah. not behind the desk. So the real question, though, is that like for people who who live in Sinclair markets for whom this is their local news, this is the channel they've been watching for their whole lives. Mm -hmm. How do they perceive this? And it's impossible for you or I to know. But I guess like I wonder if it's if it, if if, you know. Joe Average out there, if this comes on, he's just like, well, that was a that was thanks, a, thanks for listening to, yeah. to the press box, Joe. But it's like that was a clearly conservative speech. And it was and it was sort of odd. Or if it, it I mean, the, I think the fear I think it go, the fear that goes a little bit too far is the fear that people watching this won't be able to discern that there is a slant to it. So let me bring up an example of that January 2017. According to Politico, this is when Sinclair was mandating that its stations run nine commentary segments each week, mm -hmm. right? From from former Trump advisor. Is there any other kind of Trump advisor? <laughs> Boris Epstein, right? Here's yeah. a bit from one of the segments, which I kid you not, is called Bottom Line with Boris. The bottom line is this. The interaction between the press and the White House has become much more of the story than the actual substance itself. The briefings have devolved into a circus and a distraction. The American people and the press absolutely deserve access to the White House, and they should continue to pose their questions. However, that can and seemingly will be done in a manner much more conducive to delivering actual information to the American public. Now, what's interesting to me about that one is that it's not, you know, Trump is the best, Trump is the best. It's merely, well, he was talking about this, what, Trump's threat to essentially stop White House news briefings and do them off the record, right? Mm -hmm. Or do them in a different way yeah. and not have these public briefings that had turned into, you know, <laughs> get mad at the press secretary theater. But what he says is at the end, it's like, this is this is better for the country. This is everyone, the media will get good information this way, mm -hmm. right? It's all very slight. It sounds like it's actually just kind of like a Walter Cronkite kind of message. You know, now we can finally get the information we deserve. But actually he's like radically, <laughs> he's radically curtailing the transparency Transparency of the White House briefing and of the White House generally, mm -hmm. right? So that's bad, right? And that's yeah. and that's what you mean. You might watch that, and if you're you know sort of not paying attention, think, oh, this is just you know something nominally good happened in the White House today that the media and Trump are happy about. Yes, yeah. But you know he had other ones that were sort of more over the head. Yeah. More there were other editions of Bottom Line with Boris that were a little. <laughs> Boris, less. by the way, was the face of Trump TV during its <laughs> brief period of, of his brief existence during the, the end of the campaign. When I we mean, thought this was the whole end game for Trump was the TV and, network. And it probably was, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah uh, totally. But, but yeah, it's a very it's it's just a very it's it's a very bizarre thing. I mean, I guess when I, I when I watch that, I wonder if like we talked about Dale Hansen on this show before, yeah. right? There's if you, some, if, you if you are a if you are an unbiased news viewer, I mean, if you are right, if you are just a completely undecided voter in a Sinclair market and this comes on, 
is it do you react the same way that you would react to Dale Hansen where you're just like, oh, I didn't know he was a lefty, but, you know, good for him for having an opinion. You know, it's a great question. I think some of the things they're showing, uh, John Oliver did a big segment about this the other night. Some of the things they show are pretty obviously like this is a, this is a pro-Trump segment. Mm-hmm. But a lot of the things they were showing were like, here is a pastor who thinks when we were talking about Kevin Williams oh, the yeah. other day that Democrats are not the party of civil rights Republicans are. And it's a lot of like fake historical data about it. Well, he says that this happened with the Ku Klux Klan and he says that this and it's actually mimicking the rhythms of local news. Mm-hmm. And to steal a point from Oliver here, that to me is the danger of this, that you're taking whatever goodwill and trust these local anchors have built up. Yeah. And you're tilting it not just towards pro-Trump talking points, but toward like anti-media talking points. Yeah. And, you know, those people are have some level of trust in sure. all these markets. Right. But you're like using all that to tell people like the media is lying to you. Mm-hmm. You know, all these things like like CNN and things like they're just telling you lots and lots of lies. And I do think that has, you know, an effect. I don't know how big it is, but it has some kind of effect on the way people think. And, they may, and as you say, they may not be always perceiving that it's a Trump thing. Well, and p- when people talk about, you know, m- media, not media bias, when people talk about the low approval rating of the media, they're talking about the national media by and large. And frankly, they're, most of that, it, most of that, that lack of confidence is aimed at an abstraction of media, right? Yes. You're thinking of, <laughs> if, if you're, if you're a conservative, you're thinking of uh, a, you know, the right wing cliche about the New York Times, you know, if you're a liberal, you're thinking about Fox News, you're thinking about Breitbart, whatever. Um, something for everyone to hate. Most people, even if someone says, even if someone told a pollster they have a low opinion of the media, they're not talking about, you know, the Dallas Morning News. And they're probably not talking about their local evening news broadcast. So there is, yeah, a real, I think that, that I think that that's legitimate. I think there's a legitimate danger to, to, uh, to, to kind of m- making that skepticism more uh, concrete. You know, yeah, and using more tangible the, using the local news person you like to as your to spew it, mm-hmm. essentially. But yeah, there's this whole thing in political science. People used to say they were mad at politicians all the time. Yeah, they're just like frustrated. Yeah, but they were mad at national politicians. Yeah. But they almost always liked their local representative. Yeah, and they had a really good feeling. And that's kind of exactly what you're talking about with the media version of that. It's funny. I mean, there's. There's some Jack Shea from my old boss wrote a Politico piece saying essentially the liberal reaction actually worse than anything Sinclair did and just <laughs> recommends changing the channel. And I don't know if I agree with that. I mean, I don't know if I don't I don't know that. I mean, Sinclair, as we talked about, the Simpsons, they can do whatever they want. Right. Mm-hmm. They can put strange news stories on local news and, and slanted, you know, news and pro Trump news. That's the thing. Even if it's not labeled, there's no nobody says you can't. Yeah. You know, but. I, I do think there's something I just think we're going to I don't know how we'll ever measure it, but we will at the end of Trump, whenever that happens, like this, you know, the media has been just randomly and sort of, you know, with like some with with Al Pacino with a machine gun and Scarface just discredited and <laughs> yeah. shot up. And what, what what does that do to the media, to society, to everything? I think that's right. I mean, and, and I. The, the change the channel thing, I'm sure there are many arguments where I will contradict myself and say that you can change the channel is exactly what you should do. But, you know, there's a reason why Sinclair is buying up these local networks and not starting their own UHF stations or whatever in those markets, <laughs> right? There's a reason why they're having the local anchors bore us aside. They're having the local <laughs> anchors read these things out of their own mouths instead of putting instead of not just putting on talking heads, but hiring new people who believe that. Right. It's because they are trying to they're trying to sneak it in. They're trying to put it in a place where you're not inclined to change the channel. Yes. Right. Yes. And and the idea that that some of I mean, not I'm sure there are people who did change the channel, but there's going to be there's a lot of people who've been watching, you know, Channel 5, 6 o'clock news again for their entire lives. Yeah. And presumably like the local stories about local kindergartners, you know, playing a garden are still the same. Yeah. Then maybe you like that, right? Mm-hmm. Or local stories about crime and investigative, you know, investigating local companies, yeah. right? Five on your side, you know. Maybe you like that and you tolerate the Trump talking points in it. I think there- it's one, one more thing before we run is that David D. Smith, who is Sinclair's chairman, tells the New York Times, he goes to this thing of we're not conservative, right? Essentially doing the Roger Ailes Fox News trick, right? He says when he's talking about these must runs, these things these people must do, he says, you can't be serious. Do you understand that as a practical matter, every word that comes out of mouths of network news people is scripted and must be approved by someone? 
Meaning like, yes, they mm-hmm. have like producers yeah. that read their scripts, but not national overlords saying, please insert this into every one of your newscasts. Right. And also he says, you know, the must runs, all the, all locals channels get must runs from, from the networks, right? All their news programming on other shows such as late night talk, which is just late night political so-called comedy. So, you know, it's like, it's all, it is part of the ales game where you just say, I don't do anything here. This is just, this is fair and balanced news, you know? Where you you don't admit that this is different news, right, or not news at all, and actual sort of you know talking points, as it were. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, listen, I I, I don't want. I mean, it started this trying not to be overly alarmist about the situation. Too I, late. I, yeah, but I just kind of feel like we're we're it, we get there. I mean, we make fun of um, sportscasters when they have to read ad promos for the ridiculous sitcom that's coming up or the reality <laughs> show that's like. Like in the like during the third quarter when they're just like reading scripted catchphrases from The Bachelor in the middle of a football game or something like that, like that is inherently ridiculous, and that's why it's funny. And that the, and it's clear they're being, you know, they're being forced to do this. Now, if Mike Tirico or somebody came on the air and was just like, "All hail our overlord Trump," that would be a real fucking problem. <laughs> you know? Yeah. There's a, that and, would be a real problem. <laughs> And so and and we're not and that's not what Sinclair is doing. But that's that's the extreme. That's a, a very extreme example. But but you know it's it's there the, the Sinclair CEO or that is is being disingenuous. I mean it's very that we, it just it's almost it's almost silly to entertain what he says. It's it it is a problem. And 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 to say you don't know this, you can't see this. Yeah, I mean he's he's lying. So uh, yeah, clearly he knows better. All right, that's it for this week's show. We want to thank our single listener, Joe Average, for tuning in every week, and also our producer, Jim Cunningham. All right, David, more hot takes about the media next week. Talk to you then. Bye.